0: This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. Uh, my name is Chris Matthews. I'm a reporter with Market Watch, and I'm joined today by Stephen Kelly. He's a senior research associate at the Yale Program for Financial Stability. Uh, he's here to discuss the ongoing regional banking crisis. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks so much for joining me today. Great to be here, Chris. So let's just let's dive right in there. Uh, the, the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were about two months ago, um, and when regulators stepped in to, to uh, bail these banks out, they used a they they used a systemic risk exception, basically saying that this was a A risk to to the US economy. Can you walk me through why that was the case? Why are these smaller, you know, small, large but regional banks a risk to the US economy?
0: Yeah, so what we saw really, um, and what, what the regulators reported seeing over that sort of fateful last few days of that week and then the weekend in March was sort of contagion along this information vector of banks that sort of looked like Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, you know, Signature had a similar business model for uh, the crypto sector. You know, they, they sort of had catered to that industry. Again, another industry that has, has sort of been been foundering since the Fed has, has material tight, materially tightened interest rates. So basically, uh, you know, the, the Fed was worried about other big banks in, in sort of the West Coast, other banks that had sort of bet the franchise value on some of these frothier sectors. Um, and, and was more worried about, about you know, continued erosion of, of uninsured deposits at these big-ish banks. Uh, what we don't know uh, is what would have happened with First Republic if JPM hadn't you know, stepped in and said they would take the uninsured deposits. Would the Fed, the FDIC, the Treasury have all agreed on the systemic risk exception you know, two weeks ago when, when First Republic uh, ultimately went under? We don't know. Uh, but it, in March, things certainly seemed dicier and more uncertain. Uh, I know the FDIC in particular is less crazy about invoking the exception these days than they were you know, 10 weeks ago, but um, certainly there was a lot more uncertainty and everything happened much faster uh, back in March.
1: Yeah, so let, let's zero in on the, this concept called a systemic risk exception. That, Correct me if I'm wrong, but that was these are sort of guidelines that were instituted by the the last financial reform that happened after the financial crisis. Is that right?
0: So uh, this this the exception dates basically to the 90s, actually the savings and loan crisis, um, and it got it got tightened up a little bit after the last financial crisis. So the the FDIC um, in particular has a lot less authority to intervene with open banks. So. In 2008, the systemic risk exception was used to underwrite the whole system of open banks. So we got uh, unlimited deposit insurance on, on non-interest-bearing transactions accounts in 2008 till about 2010. And uh, they also did a debt guarantee program. So banks could issue term debt uh, for several years and be guaranteed full faith and credit by the government. That um, is no longer legal under the, under the systemic risk authority. They would need congress to sign off um, on something like on their use of that authority um, today which is is authorization they did not need in 2008 so that that bit is much tighter um now the fdic if they if they want to use the systemic risk exception for an individual institution they have to wait till it's in receivership so there were instances with bank of america um it ultimately didn't go through bank of america but with citigroup in 2009 um where they did targeted stuff, so stuff for one individual institution uh, where, the you know, the public sector, in this case, it was the FDIC, the Treasury and the Fed could come in and say, look, we want we want to keep this institution open. We don't want to wait until it's closed. We want to do targeted assistance for one individual institution. Again, the FDIC can't do that now. It has to be an uh, institution has to be in receivership. So that may have weighed, you know, that may have had been part of regulators calculation in March. Um, is, look, we don't want to wait until the next biggest bank is in receivership. You know, our, our authorities aren't what they used to be. And so in that sense, you know, there's sort of this perverse outcome where, uh, you know, Congress wa- wanted to curtail crisis fighters' powers. Um, and basically, it, it, it risks making them more trigger happy because, you know, you don't want to wait until a, a, a much bigger bank is, is already in receivership. Um, so you you do you invoke the exception when SVB is because it's less systemic.
1: That's interesting. And so, I mean, to, to kind of bring us back to the post-crisis politics, there was both a desire to improve financial regulations, but also to kind of tie the hands of regulators so that they couldn't engage in, in these bailouts that were politically distasteful. Um, and so at the same time, what, I, what I'm hearing you saying is that when regulators stepped in in March to ensure uninsured deposits um that that was a form of bailout and, and perhaps they might not have had to do that under previous rules
0: yeah you certainly have more flexibility to go okay um we're gonna let svb go under uh we don't think it's a systemic ri- a systemic risk but if there's contagion we have the tools we need to sort of you know draw a circle around around svb at least um that you know isn't necessarily the case anymore like i said that they lost a lot of authority to do things for banks that are still open, and so you, you sort of, you kind of have to arrest the crisis at the biggest bank you're willing to let go under. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, again, that's sort of the the perverse outcome of, of some regulations is it is it kind of makes you more trigger happy to intervene when you can um, to avoid a situation where your hands are tied.
1: Yeah, and so I I want to just say right now to encourage audience members to submit questions. Um, we we do have a, a pretty relevant audience question here from Jean-Luc who, along those lines, is asking why did U.S. regulators allow a brush fire to turn into a firestorm? Um, you know, we, we had Silicon Valley Bank and signature fail. There's still, and then there was sort of continued failures and continued stress right now around regional banks. So could they have done more to, to really stop this two months ago? Yeah,
0: I, I mean, it's a question of, again, you may have had to go to Congress and it's hard to get them to do something, especially when banks are involved, you know, when banks seem like the source of the issue, it's the politics are messier than COVID right. Where there's sort of nobody to blame. This looks like a financial crisis. Um, you know, we, we've seen the testimony on the Hill bankers are already getting excoriated over all this. So that's part of it. The other thing I think too, is we haven't really seen any new fires, um, the, the crisis vectors we've seen are, are banks that were immediately under the gun in March. So PacWest, First Republic, you know, the, the, these banks were basically on market life support for the last couple months. Um, and, you know, we'll see which, which ones get turned around and which ones don't. But the, the contagion hasn't spread to the core of the system. Um, it hasn't spread to Wall Street. It hasn't spread to banking writ large. This is really, you know, a particular business model, a particular banking business model, namely um, focused on sort of the innovation economy. Uh, I mean, it it almost has become a geographically centralized crisis um, with almost all the banks, you know, with the exception of Signature, sort of located out west. Again, it's very targeted at Silicon Valley. So, um, yes, you know, the bank crisis has continued to some degree, but... um, it's, it's sort of trickling down, you know, we're, we're sort of in the embers stage, I think, rather than, than you know, a, a true forest fire. Um, you, you can compare sort of the contagion to 2008, where it was, you know, Bear Stearns goes down and then what's the next biggest bank? And, and the crisis sort of moved towards the core of the system. Um, we're sort of seeing this dissipate and the dominoes are getting smaller.
1: Yeah, and so you mentioned that um, the crisis is centered on a particular kind of business model, one of the... the um one of the qualities of which is a reliance on uninsured deposits. Um, and so let, let's talk about deposit insurance and, and what is the role what is the purpose of deposit insurance in terms of its its ability to, to protect the economy from from systemic risk
0: Yeah the, uh, the point of deposit insurance is exactly to facilitate continued transactions right you and I can can tra- go about our business and not worry about whether your bank you know can pay my bank. Um, so it, it's, it's aim is really a macro one to facilitate economic activity. And so it makes sense that we're talking about raising limits, uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, the, the preference of the FDIC has been to raise the cap, particularly on business accounts. Um, so small businesses that are using it for payroll. I mean, you can easily see how you would exceed $250,000, a number that was set, uh, officially in 2010. Um, obviously, we've had inflation, we've had things like that. So uh, th- there, there are good reasons to move this number up, not to mention all the distortions it causes in the rest of the economy, uh, namely, you know, moving money into money market funds and things like that, things that the, the Fed and others know are financial stability risks. Uh, you know, money is sort of seeking out safety in those greener pastures. So it makes sense to move the number on deposit insurance at the least to what you will not credibly bail in in a crisis and and regulators have shown they're not willing to bail in somebody with $251,000 in an account. Someone marginally over over the deposit insurance limit is not going to bear losses when a bank fails with the possible exception of a small bank. Um, But even with a bank SVB size or signature size, we saw uninsured depositors get rescued. the, you know, if, if you're not going to bail it in ex post, it should be paying insurance premiums ex ante, right? I mean, that, and that's sort of where uh, the FDIC and others need to need to find that line of, of what they'll credibly bail in, um, because it's just, it's just not credible that you're going to bail in, you know, business, small business accounts to, to pay for a financial crisis.
1: Right. And so, you know, this gets us to some of the proposals out there. The FDIC came out with a report in which they seem to highlight the idea of extending deposit insurance for business accounts so that you avoid this problem of a small business with, you know, millions of dollars in the bank that they need to have in one account so they can make payroll. Mm -hmm. Can can you sort of comment on that proposal and and does it make sense and maybe compare it to other proposals like just blanket unlimited deposit insurance? Yeah,
0: I think it makes sense. Um, and I, I don't, to me, it's not that troublesome even talking about higher limits broadly. Um, you know, the, the trade off here is a moral hazard one. The idea is, you know, you take big institutional depositors and you sort of make them the enforcers of, of being a good bank, basically. And so if you give unlimited deposit insurance, you sort of lose that market discipline. Um, I would say a few things on that. Uh, one thing that's, that's, you know, we've gotten new evidence on in the last few months it has been very much borne out is the fact that as soon as a bank's share price starts moving significantly, there's a lot of things that start to unravel and really enforce, um, you know, a bank to, to basically tighten up its game. Uh, employees leave, right? You get news headlines, you're forced to restructure, uh, counterparties get jumpy, depositors get jumpy on, on you know, share price alone, uh, or, you know, anybody, even whether it's over 5 million or whatever it is, you know, bondholders get jumpy. So there's all these sort of enforcement mechanisms that come into play before you're really talking about like the marginal depositor um, running. So to me, that says we can move the we can move the deposit insurance limit a lot higher uh, and and sort of not lose that sort of capitalistic idea of, okay, we're going to enforce, you know, we're going to let market forces basically make um, a good bank. And the other thing to consider, too, is if you want a bank, you know, if if I am sort of monitoring my bank and I've found what I think is a great bank, I should be able to put all my money there. Right. And These services we have that sort of spread money around the system aren't doing us a capitalistic service either. When the whole point is just to spread money around so it gets FDIC insurance, that's not picking good banks anymore. That's just spreading money to get the FDIC guarantee. Um, So it's sort of at cross-purposes to this idea that uh, we want market enforcement and the market to pick the best banks and, and only use those banks.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and you mentioned we're having a lot of hearings right now, uh, regulators appearing before Capitol Hill, bankers appearing. Uh, there's a lot of blame going around, as, as is common in Washington. You know, one, one of the, the issues that Democrats point to is a 2018 sort of deregulatory law that Eased regulations on banks uh, of Silicon Valley banks uh, profile. Can you explain what that law did, and, and is it is it fair to, to blame that that change on what happened in March?
0: So, uh, to some degree, uh, the uh, the law really loosened, basically like the post 2008 regulation. So, the, I mean, the the main ones are liquidity regulation, capital regulation, and it sort of guided the Fed into softer enforcement for these regional banks. The idea being, you know, the post-2008 story was about solving too big to fail, um, and we didn't, you know, we we, we go easier on community banks because they, you know, they serve a purpose and they maybe don't have the biggest compliance departments and all that. Um, and the idea was really to extend it to sort of these mid-sized banks. Um, so, uh, you know. Silicon Valley Bank had to hold less liquidity than they would have in, in sort of that pre-2019 world. Um, their, you know, they were allowed to opt out of including certain um, mark-to-market losses in their capital. Not all their mark-to-market losses, but but the stuff unavailable for sale securities. Uh, so certainly at the margin, this stuff mattered. But again, this was really a run on a business model and. You know, If you put Silicon Valley in your name and then you, you bank the whole sector and then you come up with a press release that says, look, client cash burn is way higher, uh, you're going to lose it, all, all potential for, for new equity investment in, in you. And basically you're going to get a market run um, and $42 billion in one day and they expected $100 billion the next day. You're just never going to write a liquidity regulation that holds up to that and, and still allows a bank to be a bank. You're never going to write a capital regulation to hold up to that. Uh, you know, they, they had solid capital ratios, uh, all things considered, they would have had a little more, sure. Uh, I don't know that they would have reassured the market in 24 hours if they had an extra percentage point on their capital ratios. And, and we've seen this in Europe too, with, with Credit Swiss um, falling into UBS's arms, basically identical capital ratios, uh, and both had strong LCRs. So um, tough to say that this, this is really, you know, you, you basically can't outwit a bad business model uh, with capital and liquidity, I mean, capital is just against risk-weighted assets or total assets, but there are all sorts of things that make up a bank: the employees, uh, the business, you know, the headlines, uh, the, the macroeconomics of the whole sector. So, uh, a lot of things at play here, and it's not clear to me that some extra capital and liquidity would have solved Silicon Valley's problems.
1: Yeah, and I think um, you know, another interesting aspect of of the failure is that you know it really was based around. The issue of rising interest rates. Silicon Valley Bank invested a lot in long term government debt, the value of which fell as interest rates rose. I mean, and you hear regulators say that this is, you know, classic banking risk that should be monitored for, yet the regulators seem to miss this. And it kind of raises my next question about the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which is, was created after Dodd Frank in order to monitor for, for risks like this. Um, and yet you look at their you know, report from last year, there was no mention of, of regional banks with uninsured deposits and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, can you evaluate the performance of S. stock? Is it reasonable to expect regulators to, to see risks like this? Um, or is that kind of like an unreasonable hope that, that, that we can spot this sort of thing before it happens?
0: Yeah, um, I'm sort of a mixed view about this. I mean, one thing that's certainly true, and we've seen, um, you know, the Biden administration recently come out with, with some new documents that they want to basically tighten screws. Um, they they want to beef up FSOC to sort of its old ways where they can do entity-based designation more easily. So this was sort of removed in favor of uh, this idea of regulating activities as opposed to particular entities uh, under Trump. And you know that, that's just it's it's a much harder thing to do um, and be effective. Uh, you know uh, the Fed's stress test didn't even include rising interest rates in time for this. Uh, you, you're basically never going to outline the next crisis effectively ahead of time. I mean it's, it's just it's it's not a reasonable thing to expect, and it's why it makes sense to think about entities. Uh, you know when the FSOC came around, they were thinking about MetLife and AIG and GE Capital. Um, sort of these other entities that might fall outside of of banking regulation normally, but pose a systemic risk. So, um, you know, what has the FSOC done in the last few years besides write reports? Not much. Uh, Is there potential for them to to do something better here? Yes. Um, But again, for them to come out in 2022 and say, look, rising interest rates are a risk, You know, even if they were all even if they had spotted that they were all over it, it's not clear to me they would have stopped any crisis. Um, You know, these risks were sort of in plain sight and even the bank supervisors sort of saw them. The other thing I'll say just quickly about SVB and 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 um, some of their counterparts loading up on interest rate risk is that risk has to live somewhere, too. So that's the other hard thing is a lot of the discussion is about hedging. Um, and, but you can hedge away the whole banking system, and you no longer have a banking system, right? Bank, banks can can issue demand uh, liabilities and effectively end up holding demand assets by hedging everything away. But someone's got to hold the duration risk, and certainly, you know, the banking system itself. Um, it's important that we keep stability in that more than more than other markets. But um, that's a hard thing too, is you, you basically can't expect not that not that you know. Obviously, SVB was an extreme case, but you can't ex- expect the banking system to hedge away all its risks either. We, we sort of depend on it to take duration and credit risk.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, another issue that, that seems to be on top of mind now and may not be directly related to Silicon Valley Bank is, is regional banks' exposure to commercial real estate. And this, you know, I'm getting this from a question from our audience. That Randall asks, um, you know, should regulators be looking at this as the next, maybe domino to fall? what should they be making provisions to tell the impact from headwinds in in commercial real estate? Yeah, I
0: mean, certainly they should be thinking about it. And, and to me, this is more of a question for monetary policy and thinking about, um, you know, the degree of credit crunch that may come with sustained tightened monetary policy and, you know, stress from the commercial real estate sector. This is not a 2008 story where, Um, You know, the balance sheets at the core of the system are funding themselves with real estate backed collateral. Um, But nevertheless, I mean, it's just a big asset market. And if if the Fed tanks it inadvertently, you know, that that's going to tighten balance sheets writ large. It's not a financial crisis. You know, it's not a financial crisis set up in the way that it was in 2007. But um, certainly there's sort of more potential here for a slower moving sort of, you know, old fashioned tightening of credit. And the fed has to think about how much it wants that um because a, a lot of it it really i mean obviously the svb story with um just mark to market losses but also the stress and cre a lot of it is it's just interest rate driven and so some of that's intentional right the fed's in this awkward position where it goes you know we want to we're, we're explicitly tightened financial conditions um stock market goes down we're happy credit spreads go up we're happy a bank fails who messed up um right. and so that sort of puts them in an awkward position, but also, you know, it, it, it's got a way you, you can even hear how they how they've started to talk about the failure of SVB and Signature is like, oh, you know, it probably bought us 25 basis points or 50 basis points um, on the Fed funds rate, which, you know, is a, is a little brash. But, um, you know, once things go to the banking sector, you know, it's part of the financial system. They want to tighten financial conditions, but you got to be a lot more careful once we're talking about banks because um, just the, the contagion risk goes up. But CRE by itself, absent uh, you know a, ma- a major bank blowup is is probably okay and, and a manageable issue.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's a fascinating point you make about the Fed both being sort of the proximate cause of this crisis by raising interest rates and then also being responsible for for preventing it. Um, and that is, I think a talking point of, of Republicans of late is that you know um, the Fed was the, the primary federal regulator, Silicon Valley Bank. Yet, for some reason, it wasn't. The supervisors there were not able to anticipate the impacts of the rate increases that the Fed was implementing. Um, you know, the, do you have any more thoughts on that? Does it make sense for for the for the Fed to be the, the, a primary bank regulator given given that, that seeming conflict?
0: Yeah, I mean, and different countries do this differently. Um, the, the Fed the Fed doesn't have a huge historically. I should say the Fed does. You know, the last few decades, the Fed doesn't have a huge uh, overinflation problem, um, you know, notwithstanding the last couple of years. But the, you know, there are different ways to do this, and it, maybe the maybe there's a different story being written if the Fed was not supervising any of these banks. Um, but if you want to go out and tighten financial conditions, banks are a huge part of the financial sector, and and. Part of the part of this is like, it's just going to happen. And Jamie Dimon has sort of echoed this sentiment too, where he goes, that's that's normal. You know, banks fail in 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 tighter macro conditions, um, which is true to an extent. So I think the the more concerning part is not necessarily the failures so much as, okay, we need the systemic risk exception. We need to roll out all these emergency facilities. Uh, So more more the lack of containment um, around a bank failure. Uh, I think is, is is sort of a bigger concern, and and you know the, the lack of preparedness, I guess, or the lack of expectedness that that we were going to get some bank failures. You know, another another
1: interesting thing I think this um, the, the crisis has has illustrated is just how many banks the U.S. has relative to the size of its economy and population. Correct me if I'm wrong, but but it, it's sort of an outlier compared to other developed uh, countries. Um, is that a strength? I mean, it seems... Congress really likes to protect the community banks, the smaller banks, um, but is it in fact a strength for our economy on either just for economic reasons or financial stability reasons?
0: Yeah. So I guess I would say a couple of things. One is from a financial stability perspective, uh, big, big banks are much, much more stable. I mean, you, you see that, that playbook move number one in a banking crisis, even in 2008, which was supposedly this big too big to fail story. Uh, the, the first thing you can do to stabilize an institution is, is basically roll it into a bigger one um, and sort of aggregate balance sheets. I mean, this, this is a strategy that, that has lots of history. Um, in sort of old fashioned crises, banks would stop publishing individual balance sheets and they would publish uh, an, an aggregate balance sheet of the system as a whole and say, look, the system is solvent. Um, and so that, you know, from a financial stability perspective, big banks, diversified business models are much more stable uh community banks i'm talking small community banks certainly have their benefits you can think of areas you know with maybe less broadband access or um you know the much more local knowledge that you get with a small bank who who really who literally knows its customers um but there's that sort of leaves this nexus in between this weird space in between that maybe seems less necessary and is getting smaller now that svb and and First Republic and and Signature have sort of rolled in to to other places across the system uh, where you just don't have enough uh, geographic and and business diversity basically to be stable. Like to to look at SVB uh, and First Republic, I mean, just great loan, pristine loans, um, tons of of knowledge about their industries that they lend to, uh, but it just proved to be not stable. And so, That's why you see HSBC and Mitsubishi coming after their bankers, because it's a model that works inside of a big bank. Um, It doesn't work sort of on its own, you know, with with a risky balance sheet without a lot, a lot more capital and liquidity. Um, So, yeah, do community banks have a purpose? Absolutely. Do big banks, are they more stable? Absolutely. Um, Do we need 5,000 banks and 5,000 credit unions? Probably not.
1: Right, and and I, you know, I want to maybe spin this forward a little bit. Um, right now, we're dealing with um, a potential uh, debt ceiling crisis, um, and and perhaps that might lead to some financial stability concerns. Um, so I want to ask, you know, about what, you know, the, the uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell has has said. You know, if if there's a debt ceiling crisis, there's not much the Fed can do to protect the economy. What is your take on that? Uh, would the Fed be able to it to bail us out in some way if we do trip over this debt ceiling issue?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I, this is one of those things where it would totally be an unmitigated disaster. I mean, so much of the system, both by regulation and by market forces, is sort of built on this premise that, that there's no default risk um, in treasuries. So I guess I would say two things. One is that the Fed, uh, does not want to be in a position and probably will not put itself in a position where it's facilitating congressional gridlock um, into the indefinite future. Uh, It it does have a financial stability mandate. It does have a mandate for the economy. So it it likely would, you know, intervene if, if circumstances called for it. I don't think they would be keen on it if it didn't look like uh, it was a bridge to an agreement, you know, an agreement's going to be the here 72 hours after default. Okay, the Fed can step in and do repos, and it can buy defaulted assets, and it can do a little QE at the margin. Uh, but you're talking about a global system, um, and the, the global dollar system. If if you know the U.S. goes through a sustained default, um, and it's not clear the Fed can do much then.
1: And so you mentioned um, you know buying back the default. Can you, can you like walk like walk through like what would the um, mechanics of that potentially look like? I mean, you know for instance maybe 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 we do need a t- couple of days to bridge us over to an agreement perhaps yeah
0: so the fed could say look bring us any defaulted Q-SIP, and we'll give you par value um, you know in a repo transaction and we'll we'll charge you the fed funds rate um, so something like that where basically anything that was supposed to mature liquidity still goes out the door um, it can do qe and it can just buy up and say we'll buy them you know we'll buy anything that defaulted at par um, and we will intervene in other markets as necessary. So it could be a big staffing operation at the New York Fed, uh, but, you know, it can go QSIP by QSIP and just say, look, any security that's in trouble will take, um, you know, for the next 72 hours or whatever it may be.
1: Right. And so I just want to wrap up here with a, a, a sort of combine a couple um, audience questions um, from, from uh, Randall and, um, and, and, and John here um, sort of combining their questions. So you're talking about the the idea that that U.S. government debt is risk-free and that regulations are sort of um, written around that. I mean, we both have the interest rate risk that we've seen with Silicon Valley Bank and now potentially default risk. Um, Do we need to rethink this idea that government securities are risk-free and should sort of operate as the bedrock of of capital rules?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think we should Change the rules based on some of this debt ceiling drama. I mean, that that's almost a little bit of an enabling uh, factor as far as default risk goes. Certainly, we need to think more about uh, the capital and liquidity accounting, even even in a default risk-free world um, or debt ceiling-free world. Clearly, the accounting for health to maturity you know, assets didn't didn't make a ton of sense, at least um, in a number of cases here. I mean, it's important to think about what the import the point of regular you know laws and regulations around liquidity and capital because the market demands some right the market investors in the bank wanted to be solvent um wanted to have liquidity uh so the point of 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 regulation is really like okay there's a public interest in having these things be more liquid or have more capital than the market demands uh you know to internalize some external cost of their failure whatever whatever so in the case of SVB, the, the market is looking at it going, OK, this thing is way undercapitalized um, and regulation wasn't reflecting that. So there's clearly a case there for regulation to even catch up to the market. Um, and the same can be said of some other banks as well, where the market is looking at, at capital relative to a business model, um, not just relative to a set of assets based on their accounting. Um, so certainly there are changes you know that can be made on the regulatory side to treasuries and how they're held, how they're accounted for, et cetera. Um, but I don't know that I don't know that we could rewrite the system totally uh, starting to assume default risk in, in U.S. treasuries. I mean, that would that would take global accords and I, and everything. Um, and you'd be left with no reserve asset, basically.
1: Right. Right. That makes sense. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for being here, Stephen. And thanks to our audience uh, for joining in. Um, we hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. Uh, it'll be on the video game Super Mario Brothers, which hit the scenes way back in 1985, creating a lifetime of loyalty for Nintendo. Uh, films and theme parks now are bringing in a new generation of fans. And so tomorrow, Barron's Connor Smith, Take Kim, and Alex Yule talk about the company's history and its latest moves, plus what it all means for the stock. Thank you again for listening today. Stay safe and have a great day.